Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 3rd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fultz, an attorney with Floyd Skirin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A few recent decisions have enhanced the ability of employers to obtain apportionment of permanent disability. However, the court's successes may be short-lived as a new proposed law is rapidly gaining momentum in the California legislature to limit or water down apportionment law. Back in April 2017, the Court of Appeal published its decision in the city of Jackson versus WCAB, which confirmed apportionment to genetic factors. In that case, Christopher Rice was a police officer who suffered a spine injury. A PQME found that genetic factors were significant in his permanent impairment. The Court of Appeal reversed the WCAB, which refused to allow apportionment to genetics. And then, in December 2018, the Court of Appeal published its decision in the city of Petaluma versus WCAB and Aaron Lind. In that case, a PQME concluded that 85% of his disability was due to a previously asymptomatic underlying condition. The work comp judge, however, rejected apportionment and reconsideration was denied by the WCAB. But the Court of Appeal reversed and granted apportionment, finding that the requirement that the asymptomatic pre-existing condition will, and in of itself, naturally progress to disable the claimant was the law prior to 2004, but is no longer the law or a requirement for apportionment to an underlying condition. And recent panel decisions show that the WCAB seems to be ruling in conformity with these cases. In 2018, a WCAB panel decision in Shui versus City of Yuma, Yuba, the work comp judge rejected the opinion of an AME that said Marilyn Shui's continuous trauma, low back injury, was 50% caused by a progression of degenerative back condition. A WCAB panel reversed, citing the Court of Appeal in the city of Jackson v. Rice case, which allowed apportionment to non-industrial causation. However, this year, the California legislature again introduced legislation poised to limit apportionment in several ways with SB 731. The proposed new law adds a sentence to Labor Code 4663, which says that the approximate percentage of the permanent disability caused by other factors shall not include consideration of race, religious creed, color, national origin, age, gender, marital status, sex, sexual identity, sexual orientation, or genetic characteristics. SB 731 has been passed by the California Senate on May 19, 2019, and is now being heard in the State Assembly. Clearly, the proposed law will nullify the city of Jackson v. WCAB Rice, since apportionment in that case was based on genetics. An apportionment in the Shuey case, which is based on a degenerative condition, is arguably based upon age a factor also to be outlawed if the bill becomes law. 
Similar bills were passed by the legislature and then vetoed by Governors Arnold Schwarzenegger and later by Governor Jerry Brown for many years. It is likely that SB 731 will again be passed by the legislature. It is not clear what response Governor Gavin Newsom will have if it is passed. The Teva Pharmaceutical Industries move to pay $85 million to resolve an Oklahoma lawsuit leaves Johnson & Johnson in the uncomfortable position of being the state's sole target in the first opioid lawsuit. The settlement came nearly on the eve of trial and followed a $270 million deal by Purdue Pharma in March to resolve identical claims over the marketing of its opioid-based OxyContin painkiller. The state alleged the three companies duped doctors into prescribing the powerful medications for unapproved ailments causing fatal overdoses and drug addiction woes. Oklahoma is seeking at least $10 billion in damages and penalties for current and future outlays tied to the opioid epidemic. The trial against J&J, the remaining defendant, is the first test of public nuisance laws against opioid manufacturers and distributors. At least 42 states and more than 1,900 municipalities also have sued companies in the industry demanding billions of dollars in damages. But J&J is known for being loath to settle mass tort litigation at the early stages. The Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter has tagged the company as the kingpin of the opioid crisis because it once sold its own version of opioid painkillers as well as the active ingredient. A spokesman for J&J and its Janssen unit said the drug maker was ready to defend itself at trial from Oklahoma's claims that its painkillers caused a public nuisance in the state. The spokesman disagreed with the state's overly expansive theories of public nuisance law, which should not apply in this situation. There may be other settlements later this year as the focus of, on opioid litigation shifts to Cleveland, where a federal judge has set two other test trials for October. These additional cases will allow juries to consider public nuisance claims over drug marketing campaigns. U.S. District Judge Dan Polster is overseeing more than 1,900 suits filed by U.S. cities and counties seeking to recoup tax dollars spent fighting the opioid epidemic. Judge Polster unsuccessfully sought to push the companies and local governments into settling and then set the test trials to get the cases moving. And following the Teva settlement, the landmark pharma trial pitting the state of Oklahoma against Johnson & Johnson has now been progressing day by day. Prosecutors presented testimony from Dr. Russell Portnoy, a pain specialist who previously advocated for the use of opioids for chronic pain and was paid by pharma companies to do so as their first witness. He discussed how drug makers such as J&J and its subsidiary Janssen Pharmaceuticals would pay doctors to speak favorably about their products at third-party conferences or 
published papers under their names showing J&J products in a positive light. Dr. Poitnoy also described how Janssen used continuing <clears throat> medical education programs as marketing tools. He previously co-chaired a program called the National Pain Education Council. Despite serving as co-chair and knowing that it was funded by Janssen, Dr. Pointnoy said he had no idea the company was using its CME content selectively for marketing purposes. Portnoy and Oklahoma's lawyers reviewed J&J's business plans for its opioid product, Nucintia and Duracegic. J&J described using CME, key opinion leaders, and paid speakers to promote these drugs and take market share from its competitor, OxyContin maker, Purdue Pharma. Dr. Pointnoy said he had been paid to speak by companies such as J&J and Purdue, and discussed how these drug makers could get around rules against kickbacks by paying doctors through third-party professional societies. He said that if a drug company was sponsoring a conference at a professional society meeting, the educational payment would go to the professional society, and then the professional society may be able to transfer the money to the speakers. He explained that the speaker's programs had the primary objective to educate doctors, but the messages that doctors would give when giving talks for the Speakers Bureau were generally favorable. Dr. Poitnoy said that pharma companies were trying to obscure the risks of opioids in their marketing and education to doctors. He added that the companies highlighted the favorable aspects of opioids to doctors while downplaying risks and education about how to properly choose patients for opioid treatment and monitor them for signs of addiction. And now our crime report. Two defendants entered no contest pleas to attempting to defraud multiple insurers of about $120,000 by having students sign over their supplemental job displacement vouchers and collecting the money without providing required vocational training. 42-year-old Salvador Franco, Jr. of Downey and 45-year-old Morella Flores of Paramount were each charged with one felony count of conspiring to commit a crime, 18 felony counts of making a fraudulent statement to obtain or deny compensation, and 18 felony counts of fraudulent claims. Franco and Flores participated in an alleged supplemental job displacement voucher fraud scheme involving the Technical School Incorporated doing businesses as Technical College Incorporated and Graduates Do Succeed Institute doing business as GDS Institute. Franco was a 20% owner and a director of Technical College as well as its chief financial officer. He was also the chief financial officer of GDS Institute. Flores was an employee for both schools. The defendants offered to provide workers' compensation claimants with either at-home or off-site training for a few hours a week, along with work-related materials such as a computer. In exchange, claimants were expected to sign over their supplemental job displacement vouchers that were valued between four dollars and $10,000. 
Other students were offered a monetary payment in exchange for signing over their vouchers and not attending any training at all. However, the enrollment materials allegedly sent to insurers for payment on the vouchers vastly misrepresented the training that the claimants were going to receive. Instead of listing the at-home training, the provision of supplies, or the kickbacks to the students, defendants described the training as being several <clears throat> hundred hours in length requiring full-time attendance at one of these school campuses. Compwest Insurance Company was alerted to the scheme by a claimant living in Orange County who did not receive the promised in-home training from Technical College. Compwest then notified both the Orange County District Attorney and the California Department of Insurance who agreed to jointly investigate the complaint. Shortly thereafter, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office joined the investigation. On May 24, both defendants accepted a court offer and pled no contest to all counts. Franco and Flores were immediately sentenced to three years of formal probation. In order to pay $88,000 in restitution to insurers and $62,000 investigative costs to the California Department of Insurance. The defendants were also sentenced to 90 days in Orange County Jail. However, this was stayed pending the completion of 275 hours of community service by Franco and 250 hours by Flores. Deputy District Attorney Stephen Shriver of the Insurance Fraud Unit prosecuted this case. And in regulatory news, the controversial proposed law AB5, which implements the ABC employment test in California, was passed by the California Assembly on May 29, and it has now moved to the Senate. The law will add Section 2750.3 to the Labor Code to codify the California Supreme Court decision in the Dynamex case and clarify its application. The bill would provide that the factors of the ABC test be applied in order to determine the status of a worker as an employee or independent contractor for all provisions of the Labor Code and the Unemployment Insurance Code unless another definition or specification of employee was provided. Many self-employed workers and business owners urged the California lawmakers to expand the bill, allowing more gig economy workers to be exempted from employee status. Those seeking an expansion of the legislation wanted a variety of other workers exempted, including architects, Engineers, lawyers, real estate agents, therapists, accountants, barbers, hairstylists, and others who have advanced degrees and are licensed by the state, or that simply want to remain independent contractors. California is estimated to have two, nearly 2 million residents who choose to work as independent contractors. But the bill as it is now written appears to have responded to some, but not all, of the groups seeking to remain independent. It would now exempt specified professions from these provisions and instead provide that employment relationship test for those professions shall be governed by the legacy Borello test adopted in 1989. These exempt professions would include licensed insurance agents, certain licensed healthcare professionals, 
registered securities broker-dealers, or investment advisors, a direct salesperson, real estate licensees, workers providing hairstyling or barbering services, and those performing work under a contract for professional services. The bill would require the State Board of Barbering and Cosmetology to promulgate regulations for development of a booth rental permit and a reasonable biennial fee upon workers providing specified hairstyling or barbering services. If this new bill becomes law, on-demand tech companies are expected to challenge it in court as they have built their businesses on the independent contractor model. The law also is opposed by small business groups, which say it would crush businesses to classify certain workers as employees. And some independent contractors say they're already feeling the brunt of the California Supreme Court decision, which has led some news outlets to stop commissioning freelancers because they fear breaking the law. Employee wellness seems like a good thing. Employers, employees, and taxpayers all benefit when citizens are healthier. There also would be benefits for those involved in the workers' compensation claims. So years ago, government (coughs) sought to allow incentives for wellness. That seemed like a simple concept, but got very complicated, involving layers of federal and state law and regulations and court litigation. Fast forward to 2019, regulatory battles and delays over wellness programs continue to get more complicated. Pushing its deadline back for the second time, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission recently announced that it plans to issue amended regulations related to incentivizing participation in employer-sponsored voluntary wellness programs by the end of this year. The EEOC first finalized wellness program rules back in May of 2016, only to have a federal district court vacate portions of the rules in August 2017. The court required the EEOC to revise the incentive limit portion of the rules. The rules then stated that employers could use an incentive or penalty of up to 30% of the cost of self only coverage to encourage participation in an employer-sponsored wellness program without rendering the program involuntary in violation of federal statutes. After the court decision, the EEO scrapped the portion of its final rules related to wellness program incentives. In its regulatory agenda published in fall of 2018, the EEOC said it would publish new regulations by June 2019. However, with that deadline approaching, the agency once again moved the goalpost. Part of the EEOC's holdup with issuing new rules on wellness program incentives was that the commission, it is comprised of presidentially appointed members and has been awaiting the confirmation of two members, including a chair and a general counsel. However, within a matter of days following this month's swearing-in of the new EEOC chair, the agency unveiled its spring regulatory agenda for 2019, 
that included an update on the wellness program rules. The agency is developing a notice of proposed rulemaking to address wellness programs in response to the court's August 2017 ruling. The agenda also indicated completion of these new rules by December 2019. Legal experts believe the new regulations will likely go to great lengths to encourage participation in wellness programs, including possibly raising the 30% cap under the old rules. And in medical news, in its announcement, Acting FDA Commissioner Ned Sharpless said the approval of a new drug marks another milestone in the transformational power of gene and cell therapies to treat a wide range of diseases. The Food and Drug Administration approved the first gene therapy for a type of spinal muscular atrophy, a life-saving treatment for infants. But that medication will also be the most expensive drug in the world. Novartis is pricing the drug Zolgensma at $2.125 million, or an annualized cost of $425,000 per year for five years. Launching the drug Zolgensma will be a big test for Novartis and its new CEO, now two years on the job. Shareholders expect the gene therapy to deliver blockbuster sales to justify the $8.7 billion that Novartis spent to acquire the drug last year. To achieve commercial success, Novartis must persuade doctors who treat spinal muscular atrophy patients that the muscle-preserving benefits from a one-time injection of Zolgensma will be durable. Novartis is likely to face backlash from critics who believe charging millions of dollars for any medicine, no matter how effective, renders it unaffordable for a healthcare system already under financial stress. And they also face competition. Spinraza, a drug approved in late 2016 and sold by Biogen, has already been used to successfully treat thousands of patients with severe and milder forms of spinal muscular atrophy. That drug requires regular spinal infusions costing $750,000 in the first year and $375,000 annually thereafter for life. Sales last year totaled $1.7 billion, but the new drug, Zolgensma, may be more convenient than Spinraza. And Roach is developing a daily pill for spinal muscular atrophy called Ristidblam. That could reach the market in 2020. And a new study published by the Workers' Compensation Research Institute addressed a long-standing policy debate about the role of workers' compensation prices in the outcomes of treatment for injured workers. The study is the first to combine surveys of injured workers with claims data to examine the relationship between workers' compensation treatment prices for medical services. 
and the outcomes that workers experience after a work-related injury. Researchers determined that when the price of physician services increases relative to group health rates, injured workers report fewer problems getting the care they want, but no significant improvement in physical function or speedier return to work. In areas where workers comp paid less than group health, the WCRI found increasing the price to approximately the group health rate led to a small increase in the duration of temporary disability, but little changes in measures of access to care, recovery of physical functioning, and speed of return to work. And in areas where workers' comp already paid more than group health, price increases led to fewer concerns about access to care, faster time to non-emergency visits with physicians, and more care provided to injured workers, but little change in measures of recovery of physical functioning, speed of return to work, and duration of temporary disability. Therefore, the report concluded that while prices are related to measures of access to medical care and the nature of medical care provided, changes in these measures when prices increase are not material enough to result in improved recovery and faster return to work. And that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langaman. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.